be going into help us see. So my question for you is this. What do you see? And I'm going to come around and put out some little, um, little pictures on the table. And I'm going to encourage you to discuss amongst your people uh, what you see in these images. So when you've got them, have a look and try and discern what is going on in those pictures. Morning, people. All right, hopefully you've um, nailed all those. So I'll give you a little bit of background, a little bit of history, maybe even some psychology to some of those images because how you see those images says quite a lot about you. So first one uh, was this. It's a very famous um, image actually produced around about the sort of 1920s, 1930s, and it's called My Wife and My Mother-in-Law, okay? Which is an interesting phrase. So who did you see in this picture? Who saw a young woman? Okay, there's the young woman's face, and she's slightly turning away, okay? So you can see the, the jawline and that sort of stuff. Who saw an old woman? Okay, that's the old woman's face. You can see the nose and the, the chin and all that sort of stuff. Now, this tells me a lot about you. So if you saw the young woman first, um, apparently that's because you are a young person, so maybe 30 and under. <coughs> if you saw the old woman first, well, you're probably old, okay? That's just, that's not me, that's the psychologist. All right. What about this one here? Who saw a rabbit first? Who saw a duck first? Okay, this is, oh, this is actually called rabbit and duck. Uh, and it's apparently a test of how creative you are. So if you can see both, you are very creative. If you can just see one or the other, maybe not so creative. Okay, what about this one? This is... Um, what is this? Two faces, two people, a silhouette looking at each other. Is it anything else? A vase. Right, okay. So it's called Ruben's vase or Ruben's silhouette, and it's deliberately designed to be a bit of an ambiguous image. You're not sure whether it's one or the other, but clearly both of you, uh, clearly a lot of you got both, which is good. What about this one? Who sees a couple on the beach? Who sees anything else? A baby. Oh, not bad. Apparently not many people spot that. Uh, so I've highlighted it for you, just um, so you're aware of the image there. Now, if you see the couple on the beach, again, this is psychological, so don't blame me. If you see the couple on the beach first, that is because you are an extrovert. And if you see the baby, it is because you are an introvert. Okay? <clears throat> I don't know. All right, last one. <clears throat> Uh, this is, this is a, um, called The Upside Down Adventures of Little Lady Lovekins and Old Man Muffaroo, okay? So <clears throat> the title's pretty fascinating, but it was actually a, a, a comic strip um, 
made by a, a, a Dutch author called uh, Gustav Verbeek, and he was um, he did this sort of the late. 19th century, early 20th century, but he wrote his entire comic strips so that they could be read one way and then flipped upside down and read the other way. So uh, this picture actually is probably, it's, you can see how he's got the little caption there. So there's the guy going into the island and then this time it's the same image but a big bird catching him in his mouth. So very clever but <clears throat> I guess indicative that we can see different things. And so Here's, here's my point. <clears throat> Despite the complexity of our eyes, all those intricacies and all the different working parts and everything like that, all of that's going on, and yet we see things differently. And we make different observations, we have different perspectives, we have different experiences, we form different opinions on the things that we see. And so all of us see things quite subjectively. And scientists say that this subjectivity is based pretty much on, on what we value. What is important to us is how we see certain things. So you might think that something is beautiful, someone else might think it's ugly. You might think something is um, good, someone else might think it's bad. You might think something is important, they might think it's unimportant. You might think something is perfect, and they might see it as flawed. And I think this whole idea, this concept is captured in a really well-known phrase. The phrase is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Has anybody sort of heard of that phrase before? It's quite popular, right? So it's got an interesting history in our world. The modern-day version kind of came out in the late 19th century by an, an Irish author called Margaret Hungerford. She was the first kind of to capture this phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But if you go back through history, you'll see the Greeks they, uh, particularly Plato, they had a, a huge awareness that beauty was subjective. And even Shakespeare, in some of his plays, uh, he knew that people had different perspectives on what was beautiful. In his play, Love's, uh, Love's Labour's Lost, he writes this, Beauty is bought by the judgment of the eye, which is not too dissimilar to how we would kind of capture it today. And even in the uh, 18th century, a guy called David Hume, he was a, a Scottish skeptic, a philosopher, he wrote that beauty in all things exists merely in the mind which contemplates them, which is a fancy way of saying beauty is in the eye of the beholder, what we see is beautiful or not beautiful. So I'm going to test this theory with you this morning, and we're going to uh, play a game of Pictionary. So all you need to do, uh, there's some paper and pens, probably go with the A4 size paper. All you need to do is send someone from your table up to me. It doesn't have to be the same person every time, but send someone up to me. I'm going to show them a picture, and then they're going to recreate it, and your table is going to guess. And there's extra points if you can, um, if you can figure out who was the original artist, Okay. So, when you've got someone, send them on up to me, and I'll show them the first picture. <laughs> All right, this is the first picture. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, yep. when you're ready. <laughs> All right. Let's see how beautiful your drawings 
Okay, I will put you out of your misery because, um, <clears throat> because it was really fun watching you do this. Um, so I'll go through them. Uh, you may have noticed that they did get progressively harder. Um, that's because it was modern art. I mean, pfft, who understands modern art? But we all understand this one, okay? Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. If you, got, if you did that, give yourselves a big tick. He was the artist. Um, well done. I think pretty much everybody got that. That is the most recognisable piece of art uh, in the world, apparently. Um, and he only... Oh, yeah, nice. Which is not bad for Leonardo, given the fact that he only did about sort of 15 paintings and uh, several of them are in the top 10. What about this one? David by Michelangelo. <clears throat> there were some interesting versions... <clears throat> Did anybody do the full-length statue just out of interest? Okay, all right, well, keeping it seemly. Yeah, good, Jenny. Okay, right, the third one was the scream. Quite a famous one, yep. <coughs> By Edvard Munch, 1893. So, uh, yep. It also, too, has had a lot of parodies and various versions, but that's the original. Okay, this was number four, The Last Supper. I think you guys did pretty well on that. Robin, work of art. A few circles in a straight line. So, um, yep, pretty, pretty self-explanatory. This one, Girl with a Pearl Earring. Yes. <coughs> Tricky. Quite famous. Uh, a lot of you asked me who she was, and I don't really know. Um, no one really knows. It's possibly the artist's girlfriend, uh, but we're not sure. So anyway. Right, the final one was tricky, so I'm going to give you a little bit of background to it. This is what you had to draw. <clears throat> Did anybody get it? No, okay. That was, but it was probably a bit tough. So it's called Guernica by Pablo Picasso, and um, he invented a form of art called cubism, and uh, it's pretty chaotic and, and very sort of modern, but this was his version of the destruction and devastation that happened in the Spanish city of Guernica after the Nazis bombed it in 1937. So this was the kind of the chaos that he saw. Anyway... Those were very famous works of art. Uh, I'm very impressed with your um, creative skills. A lot of those, those works of art are in the top 10 most famous works of art of all time. Um, and so you could go and join the throngs uh, to see them, or you could just, you know, come and have a look at what you've drawn. But for centuries, for centuries, they have been viewed as being beautiful works of art. So as artists are, are, are masters of their craft and they have created beautiful art. Now, you may or may not agree with that because we see things subjectively. You may think that a classic car is more beautiful than Girl with a Pearl Earring. You may think that a necklace is more beautiful than the Statue of David. And so you're allowed to think that because beauty can be in the eye of the beholder. But there is more to just um, art and cars and jewellery that, that bring beauty to our lives. There's a lot of things in our world, a huge range of things, 
which bring beauty to our lives. And I think that's really important because we're often bombarded by things in this world that are pretty ugly. You know, we read our headlines and the images that we see on the screens and there's war and violence and poverty and corruption and mental health and there's stuff in our world that's really ugly and, and really messy. And so what I'm going to invite you to do now is on the, the big sheet, the A3 piece of paper, split it in half and on one half put the heading ugly and on the other half put the heading beauty and in sort of two minutes brainstorm as many ugly things in our world that you can think of and as many beautiful things in our world that you can think of, and then we'll have a little bit of feedback, okay? So ugly on one side, beauty on the other. What do you see in our world? Let's go. All right, 10 seconds. Okay. What are some things, we'll start with the left-hand side, what are some things on your ugly list in our world? COVID. COVID, yep. It's pretty messy. Anything else? A camel spider. Okay, good to know. They sound, they sound ugly. Yeah. What's that? Holdens. Wow, okay. That's... That's rough. So can I just, have you got Fords on the beautiful side of your list? <clears throat> okay, anything else from this side of the table? Table of the room? Yep. Poverty. Oh, it's up there, yeah. <laughs> Great minds think alike. Cool. Pollution and rubbish, yep. The 6 p.m. news. The 6 p.m. news, ugly. Okay, let's talk about the beautiful things. What's, what brings beauty into our world? <laughs> what, Jason? The female, the female figure. Good to know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Someone over here? Creation. Creation. Cool. Nice. Sun? A s- Snowflake. Snowflake. Oh, yep. Warren? Yep. Nice. The landscape. Dora? Life. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Oh. Good stuff. Now, here's the interesting thing. It is, it's kind of easy to think that <clears throat> the ugly stuff has nothing to do with the beautiful stuff, that they're like polar opposites. You know, it's very easy for us to think that violence, for example, has nothing to do with love or that corruption has nothing to do with truth. But I want to tell you that in the personal work of Jesus Christ, much of the ugliness of our world is being transformed into the beautiful. And so, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been tracking through this Genius of Jesus series, and we've been exploring how Jesus brings um, genius to power, and we've explored the genius of his humility and his goodness and his truth and his grace, and we've hopefully discovered that at the time, but also in the centuries since, the people who met Jesus, who encountered Jesus, They were transformed, and since then, those people have pushed back on the ugliness of our world and have brought beauty. Christians have brought hope and healing to every corner of our world, and Christians have done this because Jesus brought beauty into their lives. 
He brought beauty in all sorts of different ways, through his life and through his teachings, but perhaps the greatest example of Jesus bringing beauty into our world happened on a cross. And so history records that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died a very ugly death on a cross. And, and it was ugly. The, the Romans designed a cross to be a place of torture and execution. It was a brutal instrument of death. But on the cross, Jesus was beaten. He was battered, bruised, bloodied. <clears throat> As he hung on that cross, he was abandoned by his closest friends at that moment, he was even forsaken by his heavenly Father. And, and looking in from the outside, everyone who, who looked in and saw Jesus on that cross, it seemed like all was lost. But the genius of Jesus was that he could see what no one else could see. And when it seemed like all was lost, Jesus did his greatest work. This is how Paul, one of the first Christians, put it. Let me share with you from Romans. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now when Jesus selflessly sacrificed his life on the cross, he did that so that we could live. Jesus took the pain and punishment that we deserved, the, the sin and suffering that we had caused, the ugliness of our world, and he traded it for beauty. And this whole restoration and renewal and, and righteousness was possible because Jesus had power over sin and death. In fact, according to the historical record, Jesus came back to life. He conquered the grave. He defeated death. This is what we read. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. And so you can see that the cross was a symbol of suffering and shame, and Jesus turned it into a symbol of beauty and joy. Jesus transferred this, this instrument of death and made it an instrument of of life. Theologians have a, have a phrase for this. They call it the great exchange, when Jesus exchanged the ugliness of our world for the beauty of new life. And so what we're going to do together is share communion. It's a, it's a practice that Christians have been uh, undertaking for centuries. And it's an opportunity to remember the cost of that great exchange and take a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice as a symbol, that blood and that body of Jesus that was broken on the cross for us. But it's also an opportunity for us to express our gratefulness, to remember that Jesus transforms the ugliness of our world and brings beauty to our lives. So I'm going to invite you to, when you're ready, go to the, the table at the back. There is a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice there. And um, as you do that, reflect on how Jesus has brought beauty 
into your life. There's going to be some, some quotes, some verses on the screen, and you might just want to think uh, and thank Jesus for all he has done for you. So when you're ready, feel free to do that. Take communion back to your table, and then we'll draw it all together. Fifteen, I ended up staying at my grandparents for the night because my parents were out of town, and and I really wanted to stay up late to watch a Warriors rugby league game. So Nana and Granddad went off to bed, and it was it was a particular season when the Warriors were good, uh, and they were actually winning. Um, and anyway, the game was quite a quite a close game, and the Warriors were behind by a couple of points, and then. Right in the final minutes, they got a try in the corner and they won the game. And I was 15, so that's a really important thing to remember. But I was so excited that I just leapt up out of my seat and just did a huge fist pump into the air. And I'd forgotten that there was a, um, <clears throat> a light shade hanging in the lounge quite low. And I just smashed this light shade with my fist and glass just went everywhere. And I was more worried about the noise and that it would wake up Nana and Grandad, but luckily they'd taken out their hearing aids, so they didn't hear anything. <laughs> and so I started to clean up all the mess and just happened to look at my hand and, and realised that there was blood pouring out the top of my hand and I had sliced the top of one of my knuckles off. And I didn't want to wake up Nana, uh, so I went to the bathroom, rummaged around and found a couple of sticking plasters and put them on, um, and then went to bed, which was a little bit of an uncomfortable night, but I managed to get through, and the next couple of days, things started to heal up, and, and about a week later, um, I talked to a lady who was a nurse, and she said that I really should have got stitches on that wound, that it was going to have this terrible scar right across the top of my knuckle, which, when you're 15, you think is really cool, you know, like... Chicks dig scars, don't they? So that would make me super cool. Um, uh, but since then, I've collected a whole lot of other scars, um, scraped knees, you know, bike crashes, all those sorts of things. And, and you're probably a bit the same. You know, as you've journeyed through life, you've probably collected some scrapes and some scars on your life journey. And, and those are probably just the scars that we can see because there's also scars that we can't see, some of those wounds that cut deep to the core of our being. I think scars are part of our journey, they're part of our story, the record of our victories and our defeats, our triumphs, our tragedies, the joy, the pain, the courage, the clumsiness, all those sorts of things. And often we are known by our scars. Well, someone else was known by his scars. Jesus was known by his scars. Perhaps you've heard of uh, one of his close friends, Thomas. And when Jesus came back to life and appeared to his follow followers, unfortunately, Thomas wasn't there. I don't know where he was. Maybe he had some important jobs to do. Maybe he was at the shops. Maybe he was at the gym. I'm not sure. But nevertheless, Thomas wasn't there. And when, when Thomas catches up with his friends, they are bursting to tell him about this resurrected Jesus, that Jesus is back from the dead. And Thomas, he doesn't believe He's doubtful of his friend's story. He's skeptical that Jesus has conquered death. And this is what he says. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands 
and I, f- I put my fingers into them and placed my hand into the wound in his side. Well, a week later, Thomas gets his chance. Jesus suddenly appears to a gathered group of his followers, and, and Thomas is there, and Jesus greets his followers, and then he says this specifically to Thomas. He says, put your finger here. And look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't doubt any longer. Believe. And then, and only then, after Thomas has had that visible experience, Thomas says this, My Lord and my God. And I think what's fascinating about Thomas is that he can see the beauty beyond the scars. Uh, Have you ever wondered why Jesus kept his scars? I mean, the guy had just conquered death. Surely a little bit of cosmetic surgery isn't too much to ask, you know? But maybe Jesus kept his scars because not only do they make him recognizable, but they are a reminder that Jesus brings beauty out of tragedy. In fact, Jesus does more than that. Jesus brings beauty into our tragedy, and the ugliness and the messiness of our life and the stuff-ups and the stupid decisions that we make and the suffering and sadness that we have to endure, Jesus brings beauty. And so our scars no longer have to define us. Jesus is rewriting our future. He transforms the ugliness of our world and his grace and his, his truth and his love and his mercy. He brings his beauty to us. So just very, very quickly for about one or two minutes, I'm going to invite you, if you want to, to briefly share around your table how Jesus is bringing beauty or has brought beauty into your life. Maybe there's some things that have happened, there's some brokenness or some challenges that you've got through, and Jesus has brought beauty into that situation. So if you want to, no pressure. Uh, There's only as much as you're comfortable sharing. Feel free to talk about how Jesus has brought or brings beauty into your life with the people at your table. All good? Okay. All right, I'm just going to draw your attention to a final little bit. You're most welcome to keep those conversations going afterwards, but I think we could probably agree that Jesus brings beauty, and, and that's not subjective. All of us... Uh, hopefully have seen how Jesus has the power to transform a life, that no one is beyond hope. All we have to do is follow the example of Thomas and look past our scars and declare that Jesus is our Lord and our God. So we're going to conclude our time together this morning with some worship to just take the opportunity to show our gratefulness to Jesus, to recognize Uh, what he has done, what he is continuing to do, the beauty that he is bringing into our lives in the middle of our mess. So let me just pray and then we can um, worship together. God, we are grateful for Jesus and the beauty that he brings into our lives. In those tough times, those tragedies, the scars that we carry, we're just grateful that Jesus transforms the ugliness of our world into beauty. We ask that we would have eyes to see his hand at work and that we would help bring his beauty to others. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Check out this little video clip, and then the band's going to come and uh, lead us in worship.